I'm good. I'm good. Are we on Talking Joe? Live from the Talking Joe studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe. podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the code name for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking we Joe. are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble But the podcast on the air Talking Joe is there Talking Joe Talking Joe Talking Joe is on the air Hey, Mark here. Welcome to Talking Joe with a very special episode. Today we are talking to Bill Ratner, one of Hollywood's premier voiceover artists, a published poet, essayist, essayist, fiction, fiction writer, spoken word performer. His voice can be heard on movie trailers, TV promos, commercials, documentaries, video games, but most importantly, he is the cartoon voice of Flint on the G.I. Joe Sunbow cartoon, appearing in many episodes over the course of the mid-80s, including G.I. Joe the movie, which is celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. So this summer, Talking Joe talks to Bill Ratner. But I'm not doing it alone. I am joined by, as always, Tim Finn, and here he is. Hello, Mark. And hello, listeners. Tim, stop going on. We've got a person waiting in the wings. Let's, let's bring him let's in. Bring him in. Hi, <laughs> Bill. How are you? Ladies and gentlemen, Talking Joe is on the air. With Mark Talking Joe and Tim Finn all across the English-speaking map. <laughs> thank you bill you are in a are you in a home studio i'm in a home studio and um it used to be you know 20 some years ago that voiceover guys uh and women used to go to these fancy multi-million dollar production facilities but nowadays i think the majority of us are in uh their closets uh and as long as as the clothes are hanging right and there are enough of them <laughs> It can sound, and you have a decent microphone with your laptop. It can sound great. Um, this is uh, this is my control room. Let's dignify it a little bit. And I have a seven by seven by seven foot foot uh, plywood box that I have been living in as a as a voice actor for the last thirty years. Wow! And, and the only people that can yank us out are the uh, computer game people. They don't like the fact that each studio, home studio, sounds just a little bit different. And, uh, you know, the acoustics are going to be a different different from basement to basement. And so we'll have to go to Technicolor or some, you know, fancy, expensive 
post-production house for electronic arts or whoever's making the game. Otherwise, I'm I'm in my basement all day long. <laughs> is that Dude, a basement? If you get the lights off with uplighting, that would uh, <laughs> that would be is, is that a basement? I feel like I see light coming in from a window on well, your that, right, on my I, left. This was the former owner's dark room. He was a photographer. Huh. And um, when we moved in uh, and had an architect doing some things, he said, would you like a window? And I said, well, there is no window. I said, we just get a sledgehammer and knock a hole in the wall. You'll have a window. So I have a window. It's very nice. It's double pane glass with Venetian blinds and lots of dust. And uh, yeah, I have a window. There is real light coming in. But if Excellent. someone's if someone's mowing their lawn next door, is that window thick enough to, or is your seven by seven by seven it's, plywood it's, cubes? It's, it's thick enough, and they're a few yards away. Okay. Uh, there's a voiceover guy, very well known, named Joe Cipriano, who does mainly uh, network promos and so on, and he lives uh, in a lovely home in Beverly Hills, and he, uh, his studio was was in his den with no obvious soundproofing. I mean, you know, there was a lovely thick carpeting on the floor and so on. And I said, uh, but what what happens if somebody's mowing their lawn? And he said, Bill, this is this is Beverly Hills. The lawns are quite some distance apart. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, gotcha. Yeah, but I'm not in Beverly Hills, so I didn't know that. Mark, where exactly are you? You're in. You're I'm in, in Brighton on the south coast. You're in Brighton. Okay, great. And how on earth did you get involved in all this? Um, I grew up reading action force comics oh, okay. which were initially uk originated and then reprinting the american stuff and uh bought, buying all of the action force toys as they came out which is you know largely the same as the american toys and yeah getting hooked and um were the all of these years did, later, in, in, in action force did the characters retain their original names flint lady j duke scarlet etc yeah, for the most part, there was a period where they were kind of trying to do that sort of rebrand it a little bit, like repaint it. But for the most part, once we got to, I think it was uh, 87 in the UK, they started releasing uh, the American uh, figures as is with the without too much of changing of the names. But uh, so so that was the year of Flint. And I think he was called he was called Flint uh, and the same file name. But I think he was his like birth location was changed to like an english city like yeah, it was a cathedral city like very interesting Warren's i wonder if the toys were the same i'm i'm assuming they didn't remint the action figures no so so for the most part it was exactly the same tooling and the the same the same figures with like a change to the logo and the and the cartoons we got we didn't get it airing uh on terrestrial tv but we got them released on on video Right. And the only difference that they really made was that we had a, a different um, song at the front. <laughs> uh, American and, hero. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Instead of get, yes, getting rid of the American hero bit. And, uh, and we, whenever, whenever the characters would shout, yo, Joe, they would shout full force in a kind of slightly weird overdubbed uh, way. And, and they obviously hired English voice actors. Uh, yeah, but it was only it was only small elements of yeah of I guess English voice actors just doing those slight overdubs just to get rid of some of the 
Americanisms. It took all our voices away. <laughs> they did. But it was a, <laughs> but it was a better than what the Canadians did. Steel, what did the Canadians do? They they uh, we had a, a a union strike, Screen Actors Guild strike after two episodes of GI Joe, and um, the distributor said, "Well, then we're going to Canada," and uh, fired all of us except for Destro and Cobra Commander, and those two actors worked, and the rest of them sounded like, "Oh, it's so cold out there." My tongue got froze to the battery before we took off there, don't you know? Wow. <laughs> so that's why G.I. Joe only lasted three seasons. <laughs> um, Tim, we've you got... hear it okay? I can hear you well, Bill. Oh, we've got... what, a, what a pleasure uh, well, to, to meet you over my computer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm <laughs> a big fan. We no longer really exist, but we're here. <sighs> uh, I'm a big fan of the cartoon. Uh, in college, I interned at Sunbow. Oh, and, and where was Sunbow exactly? Sunbow at the time had uh, an office in New York and an office in Los Angeles. Uh, and it was no longer Sunbow Productions. It was now Sunbow Entertainment. And it was this was 10 years after G.I. Joe. And uh, it had become it had grown into a boutique animation company rather than cranking out hundreds of half hours in a few years, mostly for Hasbro. It was making one or two shows at a time, mostly for cable television. Interesting. And, so, so 10 years earlier, they were simply the physical production arm for that Hasbro uh, contracted with. Um, indirectly, Hasbro. So Sunbow grew out of Griffin Bacall, which was Hasbro's advertising agency. Um, do you remember a show called The Great Space Coaster? Maybe, yeah. Sort of like Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the two principals at the ad, ad, ad agency um were thinking big in 80, 81, 82, and were already branching into television. And since the G.I. Joe toy commercials had a few seconds of animation, um, putting two and two together, well, let's make a separate company that's sort of us anyway. We're already making television. We're already contracting out animation. Let's make half hours of uh, animation. And so Marvel Productions out on the West Coast was then subcontracted to to do the actual animation and then marvel and sunbow subcontracted to you know a studio in japan to do the actual actual animation right yeah excellent um one of the one of the questions i wanted to start off with because because you know we uh, sort of the, the standard thing will be to be go chronological so so i'll i'll i'm gonna sort of zig when i could be zagging and uh, um, my first question is going to be, you know, as as the actor sort of known for for this this character Flint, um, have you um, the Flint guy? Have you accumulated an enormous amount of Flint related paraphernalia? This is I've a got, tragic. I've got one of my. This is a tragic story. Uh, <laughs> Send that to me uh, for free of charge. I'd appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I had no idea. None of us had any idea what we were auditioning for what we were really recording um we thought perhaps this is a commercial for the uh, the initial gi joe uh, 11 and a half inch figure that was produced uh, years earlier by hasbro and uh, and then once we were hired it was only for a six episode miniseries you know with flint lady j scarlet duke destro commander etc i mean uh, cobra commander destro and um uh, it took years for me to get the fact that Hasbro uh, was making 
tens of millions of dollars a minute off the action figures from the Joe team, the as the Joe team was growing mm -hmm. character by character. And um, so the answer is no. I, I have a poster, a single poster on my wall. I have a comic book that was a single comic book with Lady J and Flynn on the cover that was given to me um, by a comic book store in, in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, and I have a screw top bottle of shampoo where Flint's head comes off the top and you want to pour your, your, your little drop of shampoo. That's it. And, and this is a sad story because I'd be a wealthier man if I had been smart. <laughs> right. Well, maybe we'll have to remedy that, that and sort of try and get you some, uh, some GI Joe paraphernalia. For Joe fans out there, if you're aging, you want to put in, put me in your will for uh, some of your action figures this would benefit me and my children that's for sure <laughs> i i have seen at transformers conventions i have seen fans give a toy in the package a newer one to the actor who plays that character right and, and then the actor says oh can i sign this for you and the fan says no 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 i love the show your work is so important to me please please take this gift and the, the mm -hmm. actors bowled over Tim, this, uh, is, this, this has never happened. Actually, it happened once mm. with a comic book. But uh, Hasbro uh, used to put on, I don't think they still do, JoeCon, which was a great event uh, where I met the great animator Larry Hama and the marketing director for Hasbro and all kinds of other voice actors and so on. And uh, we were uh, tasked with signing uh, you know, action figures and photos and so on for a couple of hours each day. And there is one young man who got in line about two or three times with a duffel bag full of action figures and, and uh, vehicles and stills and so on. And, uh, you know, we, this, is, this was our gig and we signed and signed. One of the security guys came up to him and said, what are you, wait a minute, guy, you're getting in line for the third time with another duffel bag full of this stuff, literally. And he said, I said, what, do you make your living off of it? And the guy turned to him and he said, yeah, what do you think? Of course I do. <laughs> so, so yeah but i mean i you know been in a lot of toy stores and and a lot of cons and you know as as we all know the truth is uh joe fans collect this stuff out of love and i've seen some beautiful mm -hmm. you know eye-popping displays oh uh, this used to be uh my ch uh, children's uh, playroom but uh, i took it over and it's Filled, packed with you know probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of uh, worth of uh, Joe toys and vehicles. So you yeah. are you are talking to two guys who who know and love the the cartoon and the toy, but who might lean a little bit more towards paper. You'll notice many many books behind Mark, and let's call these books behind me. Uh, and I own and <laughs> cool. in a bookstore, and I'm writing a book. So the 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 room filled with things for us is a little more likely to be uh, bound paper. Now, how do you describe the books generically? What would you say that they are? Uh, well, for me, the 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 umbrella term, the art form, is comics. Right. And comics is either comic books, which is right. you know 30 pages and stapled, or a graphic novel, which is any comic book with a spine. Right. Okay, gotcha. Uh, yeah, yeah, Billy. I, I, um, I'm, the saddest part of my story is my father gave me a G.I. Joe comic book from the 50s. 
And uh, it was G.I. Joe, the character uh, who was born in World War II, who fought in the Korean War. And I think I think this is a Korean War uh, era comic book, but he had this big square jaw and angry face and veins sticking out of his forehead. Nothing like the handsome uh, Dashiell Fairborn. <laughs> and, uh, you know, smoking a cheap cigar and you know, the, you know, an automatic weapon in his hand and um, fighting fighting in the Korean War in the 50s. And, and that was the original G.I. Joe. So he's been, he, J- Joe has been prettified and, uh, and uh, cloned into the into the great and everlasting Joe team. I was going to share share this uh, image here because this is the brand new uh, Flint toy from Super Seven, based on the the animation uh, look look of the character. Um, so, so I don't know. Presumably, you have you not have you seen this before? No, I have not. This is as as I was, I was talking about being prettified. I mean, I mean, look at this guy. He's he's, he's like a ramp model. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, man. I am you. You are me. We are all together. <laughs> so, so yeah, this is a brand new line of. Uh, this is like for the for the adult collector of the toys, where it's um, you know, ultra deluxe. No, uh, I, I I don't I don't want to sully this conversation by talking about Hollywood cinema. But was this line uh, inspired by what I believe to be the next uh, the third uh, live action GI Joe film from Paramount? There was is... a there was a separate toy line just for that movie, which came out last summer. Oh, okay. this this line is new and very specifically tries to capture the look of the '80s TV cartoon. Bless their hearts. Is this um, obviously there's licensing with Hasbro, but does mm-hmm. Hasbro have a direct hand in all this? I think for this line. Uh, beyond approvals, no. Mm-hmm. But um, this line is more expensive, partly because it is licensed to another toy company, mm-hmm. and partly because it's got so many accessories, and maybe partly because aimed at the adult collector, uh, you know, they pick a price that they think the adult collector will pay. But if you go back a step to the similarly large six-inch toy line that Hasbro is making right now. Oh, really? making making itself right not licensing out uh there is mark can you hold up your figure again yeah so so this flint figure that mark's got uh came out was it this past year uh yeah i think it was last year it came out and mm-hmm. um is supposed to look like the the toy from the from the 80s with a few modern touches in terms of gear mm-hmm. and then as much detail as modern toy making can handle. And if you put this new toy that Mark's got next to that uh, image that he just showed you of the animation one, you can see how one looks like a real person and the other looks like a flat stylized animation model turned into 3D. And there is overlap in the audience. There are people who are buying both of them. There are people who you know, we're less interested in the cartoon one. They want the more realistic military stuff. Uh, and there, there are people who are more interested in the, in the cartoon one. My, I, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to freak anybody out, but my favorite, uh, Joe action figures. Um, so, and I don't remember the name of the guys. They had a booth at Joe con in Cincinnati, I believe. And, um, they had, uh, taken apart the initial three and a half inch toys 
uh, from the 80s, the action figures, and they made them into Santa Clauses, hula dancers, long distance runners, uh, disco kings. <laughs> it was really, but still, you know, in character with the, with the head of Flint and Duke, it's, it, Cobra Commander, etc. And uh, they had essentially operated on these these uh, on the action figures, and they had replaced the rubber bands, and they had sort of made them a, l- a little more a little more durable. Uh, and and I don't think they gave them to their children. I think that these are their special toys. <laughs> of course, you can't have kids playing with toys. No, They're no. too important for that. <laughs> they, they exhibited them at cons and uh, sold them uh, as well. And I, I was really amused by the sort of the mutation of the original action figures. Now, if I can, if I can ask another question, the one of the things that kind of surprised me as uh, as i was doing my my research it was that kind of it sounds like you were pretty much involved in the cartoon from from the beginning whereas i'd assume that you you would have come into it later in, in terms of the order of the uh the way that they they screened on the uh on the tv because i think you appeared in the second miniseries the revenge of cobra so i assumed by the time you got involved gi joe was already like a smash hit that had you know, ads. My, my understanding of the history of it and, and my experience of it is it, it started with a, with a huge cattle call audition where there were over a hundred of us literally lined up in the street in a nice sunny day in Southern California. <laughs> Studio City. Oh, crikey. Literally lined in the street. Literally lined up. Wow. And uh, they, the production people from Hasbro passed out to each one of us a single uh, sheet, black and white Xerox copy of of a sort of primitive drawing of a particular character i got flint and and about 25 seconds worth of dialogue uh printed on the page in front of me was my friend mary mcdonald lewis who i had already known personally uh who played lady J, and she was going yo joe yo joe i said what are you doing I'm using my lines i'm practicing my lines and in that line was every voice actor in hollywood who i had known over the years plus um aging character actors from uh, cowboy television shows in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Have gun, will travel, gun, smoke. And uh, guys who played bad guys in in minor roles on television. They had called out old character actors, voice actors, everybody they could get. And we had no idea that this was uh, a huge marketing and merchandising plot. By <laughs> so the first thing that happened was the, was the mass audition. Nothing had been recorded. Nothing had been drawn except for the the characters and uh, individual uh, character sketches. Um, about three weeks later, I got a phone call from my agent. Well, you got the gig for GI Joe. Well, what is it? Is it a commercial or what is it? No, no, no. You're playing this character named Flint in the in the first miniseries, and um, so it was the first one of six in which uh, Duke, Scarlet, Lady J, Flint, Cobra Commander, uh, Destro, and and a few others appeared. I think there were eight of us in the studio on the first day of recording. And um, because of uh, parent group protests, PTA groups, church groups, went to Hasbro and said, we're not going to buy any more of your toys if you air this terrible, violent war cartoon on Saturday mornings for our innocent children. And so at the first recording session, 
the the classic Hollywood script girl, you know, probably an intern or somebody who had just started with Hasbro, was passing out the scripts to the voice actors, all of us lined up at our microphone. She said, I'm supposed to announce two things. One, um, nobody dies in G.I. Joe. We looked at each other and said, wait a minute, it's, it's, this is a, a war story. Uh, well, parent groups have gotten involved and lodged protests with the parent company. And so, uh, as, as you'll see in the animation uh, when it goes on the air, um, all of the bad guys who are shot out of the sky parachute innocently down over the horizon. So no one dies in G.I. Joe. The second thing she said was, a true story, um, I'm also supposed to tell you that you guys may want to buy some Hasbro stock. And we looked at each other like, wait a minute, what, what is this, a pyramid scheme? They're trying to make money on voice actors? <laughs> Had I spent $100 on Hasbro stock on that first day of recording, obviously before the release of G.I. Joe or Transformers on the air as a cartoon, uh, within about three and a half years, my, my $100 would have been worth about 950 bucks. And uh, so silly me um, and the rest of us, uh, this was sort of their their uh, version of uh, of insider trading light. Uh, and I think we asked her, why are you telling us this? I'm not supposed to say anymore. <laughs> um, and be, partly because of the nature of the show and the fear of protests by toy buyers, uh, the networks didn't want it, didn't want uh, uh, Transformers or G.I. Joe, NBC, ABC, CBS, I don't, I, I don't remember if Fox was in even existence at that point, um, didn't want it. And uh, so the marketing team from Hasbro uh, and, and with, in league with the ad agency and perhaps Sunbow had to put on their walking shoes and literally go station group to station group across the country. And this included mainly family-owned station groups. At that time, the FCC... Uh, rules were that uh, an ownership group could consist of no more than 12 television stations. So they would go to Tuscaloosa and Portland, Maine and Tallahassee, and Portland, Oregon, and, and selling door to door the idea of a six episode miniseries about GI Joe. And um, it worked. Enough stations bought it. Station groups bought it. Uh, they aired it and uh, the ratings were terrific. And uh, thus were commissioned 13 more episodes uh, from uh, Sunbow and Hasbro. Um, so that's the story as I understand it. Um, we didn't know uh, that it was particularly successful, except for the fact that we kept being called back in every week for a new episode. And the most, uh, one of the more amusing moments of, of my career on G.I. Joe was suddenly there was a, a, a sheath of papers on my copy stand and the producer uh, from hasbro came in and said you're not going to get paid paid extra for these uh and i said well, what are they uh they're public service announcements you know the parent groups are all freaked out about gi joe it's on the air but we're we're, we're, we're trying to you know make them feel better and thus came come on timmy don't throw your hardball through sally's window next door that could cause some damage and now you know, and knowing's half the battle. Turkey, now 
we might lose. Hold on there. Flint! Will yelling at Billy help? Not really. Look, if you want to play your best, you got to play like a team. Next time you get angry over a bad play, remember you need teamwork to win, not arguments. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! And I think we did about, you know, a couple dozen of those. And Disney did that kind of crap in the in the back of their uh their their children's books, these awful little morality pages that had nothing to do with the book or anything else, that uh were probably put there because uh, some high-level executive in Disney thought, well, shouldn't we moralize about something? Uh, and any any parent who has old Disney books from the 50s and 60s or grandparent, look in the back and you'll see these awful, saccharine little things. Uh, I think G.I. Joe did a lot better. Come on, Bobby. Don't hit your brother. <laughs> it might cause a bruise. Now you know. See, and knowing's half the battle. Now... This might be a good segue into into something that, that I, I thought might be a little bit fun that I'm calling the PSA 2022 challenge. So in, in a recent comic book, uh, this one on the screen, uh, Saturday Morning Adventures, it was a, a comic that just came out this, this year and kind of trying to recreate in comic form uh, brand new stories in that sort of Sunbow style. It was called G.I. Joe Saturday Morning Adventures and published by IDW. The creative team was writer Eric Burnham, artist Dan Schoening, colorist Luis Antonio Delgado, plus ably supported by research specialist Diana Davis. And one of the fun things about the book is at the very back of the book, they have put in these sort of PSA sort of uh, strips, right? just like you would at the, the cartoon. So this one is about mainframe. And what I've done with the power of Photoshop is replace mainframe with Flint. And I wondered if you could indulge us in creating a brand new uh, PSA from Flint based on this comic book that just came out this, this year, by oh, panel by panel. Perfect. Perfect. So, so maybe, um, maybe Tim, if you're the narrator, and I'll be little Bobby there, and and Bill can be Flint. <laughs> G.I. Joe presents something to know. What? This isn't what I wanted to happen. The people who made this are stupid, and I'm gonna tell everybody how stupid they are. Bloop. My computer. Having some trouble? Flint! Well, sounded like you were about to be pretty harsh there before your computer mysteriously crashed. The internet's a powerful tool for communication, but we don't need to attack others for a difference of opinion, especially over a story. That can make us the bad guy in our own story. I don't want that, Flint. I guess it's good to cool down before I talk about things. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle, you little twerp. G.I. <laughs> Joe! <laughs> well, just, just for your, for your listeners, I improvised you little twerp. I, that, 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 that dark. <laughs> you know, for part of the audience, it might be of you. Very good. Very that was good. a lot of fun. Very good. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> So, so actually, I was, um, 
Yeah, interestingly, uh, as well, it's sort of in this area of internet uh, safety that that we that this today's PSA is about. Is you're a bit of a a pioneer because you wrote uh, a book specifically about uh, what's it, is it called uh, parenting in the digital age? Yeah, parenting for the digital age: the truth about media's effect on children and what to do about it. And this was born um, really in the first season of G.I. Joe. I was at a kid's camp where my kids were going and, and I was teaching stuff just to get a, a, a break on the tuition at the camp. And I did a G.I. Joe class. And of course, you know, all the boys and a couple <laughs> of girls who are big fans uh, joined the group. And this is in the 80s. And we tried to estimate if you were to buy one, just one of every one action figure of every character and one uh attack vehicle, you know, of every uh, issue, uh, how much would you have to pay? And they estimated back then, uh, spent a few minutes really calculating around $1,800, which in today's money is more like four grand, $4,000. And by that point, I was aware of, of, of the, the sort of brilliant satanic marketing that Hasbro was doing. Um, <laughs> President Ronald Reagan, the deregulator, the great communicator, um, had had um, somehow cowed the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, into uh, undoing its regulations that had been in effect for children's television since the 1930s from, from Roosevelt. And one of the rules was, if you're producing a television show like Barbie, uh, you can't advertise the Barbie doll within the show. You can advertise it within other shows, but you know, kids under seven have been proved by studies to be so vulnerable to advertising created by by brilliant Harvard marketing MBAs uh, aimed at the six-year-old mind that um, it's just not fair play. But uh, Ronald Reagan was able to get the AC FCC somehow. Um, he appointed an, enough commissioners that were uh, conservative enough and thought, yeah, what the hell, screw it. This is, you know, it's free market. I mean, kids are fair, fair, fair game as far as advertisers are concerned. So once um, in G.I. Joe, Transformers, Barbie, etc., once it was allowable to advertise the action figures from that show within the show, within the 30 minutes, um, that's when Hasbro stock went up and Mattel's stock went up and, and it became this, this, uh, and that's when I should have bought stock. Um, th this, this behemoth of, of, of children's consumerism. So I thought, well, here I am. Of course we, as voice actors, we just made session money off the sessions and then some residuals, none of us got rich. And of course, none of us got a dime off the action figures, but Still, it was a cool gig that got us other work and we were making money. So I went into the public schools as a volunteer and created a program to, called TV Cartoon Scandals, Media Awareness for Children. And the school in my neighborhood was mainly a, you know, a, a poor kid's school. And so these were parents who were working two jobs and their children were screaming, I want Flint and Lady J. All right, shut up, shut up. I'll get them for you. And uh, you know, going into credit card debt, and this is my whole scenario in my head, right? And so um, I had a great time for a couple of years, uh, uh, going to schools every couple of weeks and doing an hour with kids and interviewing them and having fun and playing funny commercials and doing funny voices and kind of getting them to, giving them the same thing my father gave me. He was an advertising guy. 
And uh, he was very honest and candid and detailed with me as a kid as to why they were canceling my favorite shows on television. Well, they couldn't sell enough of you kids to the advertiser. And uh, he explained the details of that. And, and um, so I thought, you know what, I'm going to do what my dad did for me. And I was at a storytelling conference um, where I was paid to tell stories and teach workshops. And um, I took somebody else's workshop and a woman sitting next to me said, have you ever written a book about your work with kids? And I said, no, why do you ask? Well, my husband and I just uh, started a uh, publishing company, Familius Books, Books for the Family. I thought, oh, well, cool. And and they sent me a, a, a boilerplate book contract. And uh, I wasn't a professional writer by any means. I'd done some, a lot of storytelling stuff and written short pieces and gotten some published. But um, so I started in on this book, Parenting for the Digital Age, and talked a lot about G.I. Joe and the history of G.I. Joe and, the, and what the sessions were like and what the merchandising was like. And talked about the history of Barbie, which is a really weird history, and talked about the secret history of Barbie and G.I. Joe, uh, which is a whole other dark chapter. Coming in June to the Hollywood Fringe Festival, the true life adventures of Barbie and G.I. Joe. Go behind the tattered curtain of Barbie's boudoir. Ride onto the battlefield with Flint and the G.I. Joe team. Witness a Christmas night that will live in infamy. It's a tale of jealousy, media terror, and the fleecing of innocent children. A tawdry true story told by nine-time Moth Story Slam and two-time Best of Hollywood Fringe Extension winner, Bill Ratner. <clears throat> That's me. How many things can one girl have? How many guns can one man shoot? How much do these dolls have to lose before they find out who they really are? The True Life Adventures of Barbie and G.I. Joe. There you go. True Life Adventures of Barbie and G.I. Joe. That That is a uh, poster from my Hollywood Fringe uh, production called The True Life Adventures of Barbie and G.I. Joe based on a cover of Barbie magazine during Operation Desert Storm in Kuwait, where the U.S. went in to uh, beat back Saddam Hussein uh, in Iraq. And um, Barbie and 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 uh, one of the characters, a generic member of the Joe team, were featured under an umbrella, sunning, half clad on the beach. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I wrote an 85 page book. I didn't know what else to write. I sent it in. The publisher said, this is great, Bill, but we're not going to publish an 85 page book and uh, just double the length. So I enrolled in a master's program at UC Riverside part-time. They had some good nonfiction uh, teachers. And um, they said, just, you know, just go interview parents, interview kids, interview sociologists, interview educators. And so I did and um, had a really great time. It got published. Uh, I ended up at a bunch of TV stations around the country and uh, who were amused by the fact that I was making money on one hand. I was confronted actually at ABC where I was doing promos for years tonight on ABC by uh, confronted by a young producer who said, so Bill, are you the guy who we pay to tell people to watch television, but you just wrote a book telling people not to watch television? I said, well, it's not quite that simple, uh, but, uh, I really had a great time, you know, speaking before church groups and, and, 
educate groups of educators and and uh to this day i still get emails about it and and i sell i think probably about two copies a year uh came out in 2014 but with covid and kids on screen time and parents not knowing what the heck to do other than let their kids just spend as much time as possible it's kind of come back as a as a controversial issue um Steve Jobs was interviewed before he died, and uh, the New York Times writer who was interviewing him was very surprised when Jobs said, oh, no, no, we don't have iPhones or iPads or any of it in our house. No, 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 absolutely not. That stuff is addictive. I wouldn't let my kids have that. And then this writer went on to uh, uh, interview uh, CFOs and CEOs and CTOs of uh, Silicon Valley companies, highly placed executives, all of whom said the same thing. No, no, that we don't have this. It's absolutely banned from our house. When a kid turned eighteen, turn eighteen, if they want a, a smartphone, you know, they can have it. But no, no, no they got to get through school first, which I found absolutely fascinating. And um, of course, let my kids have smartphones, and I'd hide them in my sock drawer at night. But th this is a very long-winded answer to your question about <laughs> my my penning a book about the media. Absolutely. And so, so you've had, got this kind of conflicted kind of uh, experience with the with the with the brand sort of, I guess, in, you know, enjoying the experience and, and, and a fiction for the for the character but at the same time, the pull of the devious toy industry. But you do keep on coming uh, back to it. What? Uh, so, so, for example, here we go. Family guy. Is that alcohol? Mister, you're in serious trouble. He's absolutely right, kids, because when you drink, nobody wins. In fact, last year alone, there were over 27,000 deaths from chronic liver disease as a result of alcohol abuse. Now we know! And knowing is half the battle. Appearance there. <laughs> yes, that was, and... The Family Guy was really, really fun. That was one episode. And... Um, they because i'm in my basement most of the time uh, uh, i have a hard time scheduling myself at a at a distant recording studio and uh, seth mcfarlane uh, wanted flint in an episode of family guy and wanted to schedule it on the lot at 20th century fox which is quite some distance away and w we went back and forth uh, you know for days about this me and my agent well when can you go now nah, thursday i can I blah 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 and finally they said, well, Mr. McFarlane is going to call you on the phone. You can do it in your studio. And I went, well, great. That's convenient. And uh, I got a little nervous. I mean, here's a big celebrity, Seth McFarlane, right? And he calls up and please hold for Mr. McFarlane. Hey, Seth, how you doing? He was nervous. I could hear <laughs> his voice. And I said, Seth, so good to, so good to meet you, man. Why did you, what, tell me about this. Well, uh, Bill, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Flint fan, I'm a huge G.I. Joe fan. Uh, I, was, I was 11 years old, and, <laughs> and I thought, the tables have finally turned. This is great. It's no longer me in a Hollywood bistro looking at a celebrity, you know, stuttering. <laughs> and, and, yeah, that episode was really fun. And then his, you know, one of his production partners and friend, Seth Green, from Robot Chicken, said, well, I want Flint. And we did a couple episodes of Robot Chicken, which are really wonderfully perverse and funny and, and crazy. 
Hey, guys, going on a mission? G can I come? Sorry, Snowjob. <laughs> this mission doesn't require skis. Wearing a blindingly white outfit in the middle of jungle warfare makes you a very shootable target, man. <laughs> Bunch of GI jerks. But to go back for a second about go the good cop and bad cop in my head, um, at a Jokon, uh, there's a, a guy about 30 years old, much like you guys, who are very well versed in media history. And, uh, uh, you know, he talked about his showing pictures of his, his G.I. Joe collection and so on. And all of us sat down for supper one night at the con and his mother and father were there. So just to be kind of kind of uh, silly and ironic, I turned to his mother, nice 60 year old lady, and said, how do you feel about the fact that your son at age 30 is still playing with action figures? And she said, well, um, my son and I are both teachers in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania public schools. I teach ninth grade uh, remedial English. And uh, one year, uh, the kids were in my class were doing so badly on literacy tests. The principal came to me and said, do something. So she said, I borrowed my son's G.I. Joe action figure collection, G.I. Joe comic book collection, and his VHS videotape collection of Joe episodes. And she uh, created a literacy program out of just that, uh, showing the videotapes, having them read the comic books and read them aloud, and then uh, create scenarios based on the plots that were in uh, the episodes. And um, she said within nine months, uh, the principal came to me and on the basis of testing found that the ninth graders in her class had raised the literacy rate by 50%. So there you have it. The moral and ethical reason for G.I. <laughs> Joe. Yeah, got me reading. <laughs> um, so sort of slightly running out of time, so we don't probably have a long time for a long question. Tim, is there something burning that for, for you that you desperately yeah. want to ask um radio or tv or movies when you were young was there a performance that grabbed you that helped set you on this path yes absolutely and it lasted about 15 seconds because my dad was in advertising i was more sort of uh, sensitized to what i was hearing and seeing on television the difference between the commercial and the actual cartoon show, um, so on like that. And I was five years old, five and a half years old. I was in kindergarten. And uh, my dad had bought us a brand new, great, big, hardwood set, television set, black and white set. And uh, yeah, this is on, this is off. Here's the volume. Enjoy the set, kid. And I was watching some silly afternoon television show. You know, Uncle Bobby is going on the railroad. We'll be right back after this. And I heard, and I remember this as though it were a year ago, a deep-throated announcer say, the following commercial message will be 60 seconds long, which apparently was a standard sort of operating procedure in the early days of commercial television. Of course, they don't do it now. And uh, then came on, I believe it was an automobile commercial. I don't remember what brand, but, you know, Oldsmobile for 1953 and a happy family, you know, waving out the window and so on. 
And I was struck by this. I think I held my breath for 60 seconds. And I ran into the kitchen. I said, Mom, I know what a minute is. Oh, that's nice. What's that, dear? Oh, uh, 60 seconds. Oh, did you learn that in kindergarten? No, the man on TV said so. So, Tim, the answer to your question is absolutely. That was the performance. And I somehow was so struck by that announcer's voice and the omniscience and omnipotence and invisibility that he had and the power to simply enter my brain and say, this commercial message will be 60 seconds long. And uh, it was educative. Uh, it was powerful. It was true. And uh, my career path was set in that moment. Hmm. So I, I went on to imitate. I, I, I borrowed one of my dad's little uh, empty razor blade uh, shaving kit things that looked like a tiny little uh, radio, uh, like, a little, like a little broadcast tool. And I would go outside by myself. Do you hear me? Does anyone hear me? Doing imaginary broadcasts, talking to the sparrows on the power wire. And so I, was, I identified myself from age five as one of those guys who was going to do this, and I'm still doing this. Excellent. Very good. And um, we can't let you go away without giving an opportunity to uh, promote the things that you want to promote. So, so what, um, what can people, uh, where can people find you? What should people be looking out for? I just happen to have go on Bill Ratner, just Google Bill Ratner, Amazon. And you'll find Fear of Fish by Bill Ratner. I'm six years old, sucking my thumb. Um, I, I was asked to do a, a poem about the Marvel Universe uh, for an anthology that's coming out here in Southern California from Freeze Ray Poetry. And because Marvel produced the comic books for G.I. Joe. Um, and I believe that's in here and a bunch of other stuff. And then for the morbid in the crowd, to decorate a casket. <laughs> available at a, these are both done by uh small southern poetry presses uh this this was from alien the great alien buddha press in spartanburg south carolina and the well-known finishing line press in georgetown virginia so uh these are legit not self-published and uh, my messages to the world so joe fans bill ratner amazon.com bye 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 do it excellent uh so it's been a joy having you uh on to to, to talk wish it could have been uh longer i'm sure we could have gone for for hours tim could we could we get a, a sign off like this has been talking joe or you've been listening to i need my hands to my ears to do this tim just in case you're wondering this has been another episode of talking joe talking joe where the truth may be told. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this, <laughs> this on the screen at the moment is our standard outro, which I typically force Tim to, to sing, but I, th I think it would be very apt if you can give us our standard in outro uh, today. So uh, if you can see that. Yes, I can. Um, and I'll do this on, 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 uh, on one condition, that as soon as, as soon as this episode goes up, you guys send me the link. I will blast it out to my tens of fans <laughs> on, on the uh, on the interwebs. 
Yo, and you'll be excited that our tens of fans will consider buying your twos of books. <laughs> Two is better than one. All right, here we go. Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast. Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast. And for the happier crowd, nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast. <laughs> And for comparison, Tim, do you want to show him how you do it? Oh, um, uh, Bill, this is, uh, I think, the 1988 toy commercials, the the tag at the end. Um, <clears throat> Nobody beats Talking Joe, an international podcast. Now, that had energy, uh, Tim. It had youth. It had energy. Uh, <laughs> it was a command. Uh, I would cast you over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds good. And Tim, where can people find you? Uh, video essays from my creative partners and I are at Atomic Abe Productions, our YouTube channel. My brick and mortar store is Hub Comics in Somerville, Massachusetts. And my G.I. Joe blog is arealamericanbook.com. All right, guys. Excellent. Really fun. Really fun. Great questions. And, and, uh, it's so fun for me to talk with intelligent people about this <laughs> wild miasma called uh, the legend of G.I. Joe on Talking Joe. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank, Thank you, you so guys. much. All it right, was guys. a real treat. Yo, Thanks Joe. a lot. to say that the production values and the the iq on the joe iq on this show is is uh, the highest i've i've encountered in in podcasts well i i give most of the credit to mark who does most of the work and uh i guess he was just smart enough to ask me along <laughs> yes, yes. good good work good work